it goes without saying that growing older poses many unwelcome challenges. One of them is the diminishing of vision, our eyesight. The fine print that we once were able to read without much difficulty become blurred. And objects that we could once see clearly begin to become indistinct. And unless we take corrective measures like laser surgery or wear prescription glasses, we seem to operate in a world of shadows. We do not know the age at which David wrote Psalm 39, nor do we even know whether his eyesight, physical eyesight, was good or bad. But based on the content, one thing we do know is that his spiritual vision was undiminished. In fact, it seemed as he grew older, he received more clarity. His spiritual vision became more and more acute so that he saw the things that are truly relevant and vital for those who live in light and prepare for eternity. David dedicates Psalm 39 to Jehuthun, one of the choir directors that he appointed to lead worship in Israel alongside Asaph and Hermon and Heman. You see it in 1 Chronicles 9 and 16 and chapter 16 verse 38. The psalm fits within the category of lament. This is a broad and frequent category in the book of Psalm. We do not know the occasion. We do not know why David wrote Psalm 39. But it appears, at least from the content of the psalm, and especially in verse 10, that David was suffering some physical ailment. He was sick, physically ill. And in verses 1 to 3, which is the introduction to the psalm, David resolves to remain taciturn, silent, in the midst of his struggles. He tells us this, I said I will guard my ways. He, he came to this position. I said I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good. And my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Here David is sick, but he has unbelievers who are gathered before him. And he fears that if he speaks, he might say something that they would latch on use against him, charge him with irreverence towards God or some other sin. And so David is suffering and he says, but I'm going to remain quiet. I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm not even going to say something that is good and beneficial. I'm just going to be quiet. Sometimes it's good to shut your mouth. It's not a bad thing to spend time not talking and reflecting. But David 
tells us that while he was remaining silent, tranquil on the exterior, there was a battle raging on the inside. In this self-imposed silence, his heart, in verse 2, he says, was stirred within him. He's speaking about his emotions. He was boiling. As he meditated on his condition and life, his heart was aflame with passion. And finally, he could keep silent no longer. He decides that he must speak. But David, instead of speaking to men, addressed prayer to God, who alone could assist him. And verses 4 to 13, which is the substance of the psalm, sets forth some important lessons that we ought to consider as we live and await eternity. The first major division, that is after the introduction, after verses 1 to 3, is verses 4 to 6. And verses 4 to 6 contain a reflection on the brevity of life. Here's what David says to the Lord in his illness. As his heart was stirred up with him with passion, as he was moved to great emotional depth, he says, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure that is the length of my days? That I might know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as hundreds, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely, every man walks about like a shadow. Surely, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. In 1968, the American psychiatrist, Robert Lifton, identified what he saw as the emergence of a new kind of man, a man which he describes as protean man. You remember that in Greek mythology, Proteus was the god who could change into various forms. He could change into the form of a lion or of a snake or of a tree or fire or water. And Lifton, as he looked at his generation, says that there's a new kind of man emerging, a man that is malleable, a man that is always changing, a man that adopts different identities. He saw his generation as unwilling to commit to one identity. It's not very different from today. We have people today who won't accept the traditional classifications of gender, male and female. We now have people who identify themselves as other. The malleable man, the protean man, the man who's always changing. We wear designer personalities. We, we know that. Some old lady somewhere in Kapaskasing or somewhere there goes on the internet and creates a picture of herself, a profile on the internet. She is 70 or 80 years old, but she presents a picture of herself as a brunette, 23 years old, full of zest and life. 
you're foolish enough to go up to Kapitalism to find her, you find somebody quite different. We have all kinds of designer personalities that people are adopting at will. It's amazing. We, some time ago, we were walking down Gerard Street towards Young Street, and this fellow comes running down the street. He was dressed in the costume of a tiger. And he was doing all the actions that you would expect from a tiger. He was convinced, it seemed, that he was a tiger while we were not. We have designer personality. This is part and parcel of the culture. But even though we may change or attempt to change our identity, I don't think you can change your gender. You're born a man. You will be a man. You may try to take drugs. You might take hormone treatment. You'll become a, if you're a man, you'll become a feminized man. And if you're a woman, you'll become a masculinized woman. you remain who you are. We may attempt to change our identity, but one thing that remains unchanging is our mortality. So David came to understand that there is a limit to human life, that we don't live forever. And he goes on to describe here with powerful imageries this reality, this inescapable reality of the brevity of human life. You notice what he says in verses 4, Lord, make me to know my end. What is the measure of my day? There is a beginning and there is an end to our lives. He says with these imageries, he, he compares his life and human life to a handbreadth. A short space of time. He says, my age is nothing before you compared to God who is eternal, man who is limited in time is but nothing. He says, every man at his best state is but vapor. That word there is Habel, vanity. There's a picture of a, a a UK boxer on the page of one of the magazines or one of the newspapers there in the UK. He had just knocked out one of his competitors and he was standing there with arms aloft in triumph. A paragon of strength. A paragon of robust health. But the psalmist says that man at his very best when we are in the prime of life, with all our strengths and all our faculties intact, man at his very best is but vanity. You see, the psalmist understands and agrees with the writer of Ecclesiastes who says of humanity, vanity of vanity, tute vanity, all is vanity. The psalmist appreciates then this inescapable reality of not only the brevity but the fragility of life. We are but vapor. He says every man walks about like a shadow. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And then he shows then the futility. Given the fact of our brevity, he shows the futility of making the pursuit of material thing our priority. For he says this, he says, surely they busy themselves in vain, in verse 6. A man heaps up riches, but he does not know who will gather them. And we know that's true. We, 
We may work very hard, leave money for our children. But we, we don't know who they're going to marry. We don't, know, we don't know what's going to happen, who's going to inherit it, who's going to swindle them out of it. And so he's saying then the life is brief. That man does not control life. He can't determine what happens after him. And so in verses 4 to 6, we see then the theme of the brevity, a reflection on the brevity, the shortness of life. Verse 7, which is the very heart of the psalm, turns to the affirmation of hope. So he moves from the brevity of human life to the affirmation of hope in the Lord. See, not only should one see the brevity of life, but he also sees the necessity for one to have hope in God. And now he says in verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. This is the very center of the psalm, the very important element of the psalm. He recognizes that looking at human brevity is a cul-de-sac that leads to fatalism if one does not bear in mind the necessity of hope in God. Now, when the psalmist uses the term hope, what does he refer to? Simply put, hope refers to the expectation of future good. Hope is to expect future good. But that is the broadest definition. When the Bible, however, uses hope, it has a more specialized meaning. For it is not speaking about a general expectation that something good may or may not happen in the future. It is much more precise. And I agree here with the Old Testament scholar Alec Moiter who defines hope in this way. He says hope is trustful patient certainty that God will act. Here, there are three elements to biblical hope. He says hope entails trust. The one who hopes in God is the one who relies on God. He does not merely expect perhaps good will occur, but he trusts. You see, there is this connection between hoping and trusting. He relies upon God to bring good. He says that hope involves patience. It is trustful, patient certainty that God will act. And you know that hope entails patience. In fact, patience is at the very heart of hope. In fact, in verse 7, he says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? He, you could translate it, what do I hope for? You see, patience is part and parcel of hope. Those who hope in God not only rely on God, but they are willing to wait on God's time. They will wait even when the circumstances around them are telling them that it is futile to wait. They will wait God's time and God's way. Thirdly, hope, he says, involves certainty. Very often when we use hope, we say things like, I hope tomorrow will be a nice day like today. We aren't certain. We just wish it to be so. 
But biblical hope involves not only trust, reliance on God, not only patience in God, but it requires certainty. There is an assurance that God indeed will bring good. The psalmist, in the midst then of the brevity of life, in the midst of his illness, he says, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. You notice that the object of his hope is God. He hopes not merely in some good happening, but he hopes in God. And this is one of the pregnant themes in the Psalms, that hope is essentially in God. You only have to look at the preceding Psalms 38 and verse 15, where the psalmist says, For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. You see, true biblical hope is not merely in in, in some vague notion that good will occur, but biblical hope is in God. In you, O Lord, do I hope. And this theme is repeated in the Psalms, that hope is in God. We see this in Psalm 42, a psalm that is well known to us. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted with me? O hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the the help of his countenance, Psalm 42, verse 5, verse 11, and Psalm 43, verse 5. All of these says hope in God. Now the psalmist affirms his hope. He reflects on the brevity of life. Now he affirms his hope in God. And this hope is well-founded. This hope is well-founded because it is founded upon the character of God. There are people who hope for things to happen. But it is a hope that has no basis. But the psalmist says, in you I hope. Why? Because he knows the character of God. And there are a few things that he knows about the character of God. First and foremost, he knows that God in his character is truthful. And that is why you find in Psalm 119 repeatedly, the psalmist can say, those who fear you will be glad. When they see me, because I have hoped in your word. You see, God may be trusted. We may depend upon him. We may look to him for good because God keeps his promises. His words are yea and are amen. When God speaks, God acts. He cannot be unfaithful to himself because he's God. And the psalmist then can hope in God, the God who promises to protect him. The God who promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The God who promises that he loves his people, that he will help them and he will deliver them. The Lord who promises that he will grant grace upon grace to his people. You can trust him because you see, God is faithful to his promises. He knew that. Moreover, he can trust God because not only is God faithful in his promise, but that God is merciful and loving in his being. The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. There is love and kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Psalm 130 verse 7. God is a God of covenant, a God who shows mercy, not only forgiveness, but loving kindness to his people. Why does he hope in the Lord? 
Well, he hopes in God for another reason, not only because God is a God of verity or truth and, and love, but he hopes in God because God delights in those who hope him, in him. In Psalm 147, verse 11, the psalmist says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. That God is delighted. God is extremely pleased when his people are looking to him for help. The Lord takes pleasure, delight in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Psalm 147 and verse 11. But more than that, the psalmist's hope in God is well-founded, not only because of the character of God, not only because of the pleasure of God in those who hope in him, but because God rewards those who hope in him. And so he can say, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his mercy. God sees them. God watches over them. God guides them by his eye. Or again in Psalm 31, 24, be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. You see, not only does God delight in those who hope him, but he rewards them with his presence. He rewards them with his strength. The substance of the psalmist's hope is not clear here. He says, now, Lord, what do I wait for? I hope in you. My hope is in you. He does not tell us what he's hoping for, but we, we are led to believe and we ought to consider that every physical and every spiritual that need that he has, he looks to the Lord for it. And so he hopes in God. So we have seen then in these few verses, we have seen the reflection on the brevity of life. Secondly, the affirmation of hope in the Lord in verse 7. In verses 8 to 13, we see the supplication for deliverance from sin. You see, while it is important for the psalmist to recognize the brevity of life and to fix his hope on the Lord, it is also necessary for him to consider deliverance from sin. And so he cries to the Lord in verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions and do not make me the reproach of the foolish. Here David recognizes that he needs deliverance. And throughout the book of Psalm, David will cry to God for deliverance. On many occasions, he will ask God to deliver him from fear, from death. More often, than any other time, he will ask God to deliver him from his enemies. And we need to remember that David was a military leader. And not only so, he was also a king who had many enemies, both internal and external enemies. And so many of the Psalms where David cries to God for deliverance, he's asking for deliverance from enemies, people who hated him and wished to do him harm. He also prays for deliverance from adversities, like illnesses. But he understands that the greatest deliverance that he needs is not from physical enemies, not even from physical ailment, but the greatest deliverance that man needs is deliverance from sin. Hence, his cry to God. 
deliver me from all my transgressions. The Egyptians believed that sin was an aberration, something out of the ordinary, something unusual, unexpected. But David viewed sin as passer, as transgression or rebellion. For him, sin was transgression. It was rebellion against legitimate authority. And what David came to understand that his sins were offensive acts of deliberate rebellion against the legitimate authority of Almighty God. And he cries out, deliver me not from some but from all, all of my transgressions. Because he understands himself to be a great sinner. Why does he pray for forgiveness? Well, he prays for forgiveness because he understands that God, first of all, forgives sins. In Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12, David says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to those who fear him. And as far as the heavens are, are, are far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He can pray that God would deliver him from the guilt of his transgressions because God is a forgiving God. The history of humanity up to the point that David lived was proof positive that God forgives. His dealings with the wilderness generation, his dealings with the judges in, in the period before David show that often they sinned against God. He sent judgment and when they cried, God forgave them. David's own experience also cemented the fact that God is a forgiving God. And so he cries because he knows that at heart, God is a God who can be entreated. God forgives. But David, I would suggest to you, prays for forgiveness because not only does God forgive sin, but God atones for sin. It's important you understand that. The reason God can forgive our sins is because he atones. He makes payment for them. He just does not forgive sins by a divine fiat. He doesn't just pronounce you forgiven. You, you may go to the Catholic priest and he says to you, son, your sins are forgiven. They're still with you. He forgives sin with a divine, with a human fiat. Speaking in the voice of God, assumedly. But you see, God doesn't just say to you, your sins are forgiven when you turn to him in repentance. God forgives because he atones. And this is what David recognized in Psalm 65 verse 3. He says, iniquities prevail against me. And as for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. That's an amazing statement. Because David lived in an age when men brought their sacrifices to the temple. They were making atonement. They were giving an animal to God. David recognized that if sins are truly to be forgiven, God must not only demand the payment, but God must himself provide the payment. He must make atonement. And the reason God forgives our sins is because he atones for them. He covers them. But David not only prays for 
forgiveness of sins. He prays or he doesn't pray for deliverance from sin. He also prays for deliverance from the consequences of sin. And that's what you find in the remainder of these verses. He's asking God to forgive him of his sins and to deliver him from the consequences. One of the consequences he wants to be delivered from is in verse 8. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. And ostensibly he's saying, do not let me sin so that the wicked may mock me, may reproach me. Then in verse 10, or rather in verse 9, he reprises an argument that he brought up earlier that he was silent. He did not open his mouth, he says. That was in the past because it's the Lord who had brought him to suffer. But now in verse 10, he begins to ask for mercy for the consequences of his sins. And what David does in this passage is that he argues on two fronts. First of all, he argues on the basis of his nature, his brevity, his fragility. So he says in verse 10, remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. With rebukes you correct man for iniquity. You make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. He's saying to God, forgive me my sins and forgive me the consequences of my sin because when you chastise me, when you chastise men, we wither and die. We dissolve like a moth. We are vapor. He's arguing on the basis then of his nature, the nature of man as fragile, as brief. Secondly, he argues for deliverance from the consequence of sin, not only on the basis of his nature, but on the basis of his status. We find in verses 12 to 13, four short exhortations to God. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent with my tears. In verse 13, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and I'm no more. But in verse 12, he says, do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger. He doesn't mean that God does not know him, because then the whole argument of the psalm would make no sense. He's talking to God, who has made him, who knew him. When he uses the term stranger, for I am a stranger, we should think more in terms of a temporary resident. A resident alien, someone who is around for a short time. And that's what he's saying to God. Not only am I fragile in nature, but I'm a pilgrim. I'm only passing through. I am a stranger, and just like Israel, you have called them to be gracious to strangers. I want you to be gracious to me. Take your gaze away from me before I go away and I'm no more. Some may think that a discourse on the brevity and the shortness of life is unduly morbid. But scripture demands that we think of life's brevity, our brevity. We must think about the years that we have already lived that cannot be regained and the brief time that we have left we ought to look at life and recognize that life is precious and every day it becomes more precious because there's less of it 
We ought to look at life and the brevity of life that we may be wise in our use of our lives. It was Moses who said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. You see, it is only as we confront the fact that we are not here to stay, that we are pilgrims that we are passing through, that soon our eyes will close in death. It is only as we recognize our temporality, our transiency, that we can live each moment for God. The writer says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, considering the brevity of life enables us or encourages us to live holy and godly lives. It impels us to live with the remainder of our lives for the glory of God. Because life is brief. And you and I are to consider how brief we are and buy up the moments, redeeming the time, using our time and our energy, whatever is left of it, that God may be magnified before we are called to our fathers. But the psalmist not only calls us to think on the brevity of life, he calls us to exhibit the fixity of hope. He calls us to a fixed hope. This is not a kind of fear where the hope, a hope that thrives when all is calm and bright. But he's calling us to hope in the midst of the turbulence and the trials of life. David was a sick man, very sick man. But it is in his sickness that he says, Lord, to you I look. Upon you I wait. I will trust in you. You see, when we suffer, we are not called to passive indifference. There is a place for lament. There is a place of crying out to God saying, Lord, I need you. Will you not help me? There is a time and a place to be on our face before God saying, I cannot let you go unless you bless me. But while we pour out our lament to God, there must be a vibrancy, a fixity of hope. A hope that says, I know my Redeemer lives. I know my God will come through for me. I do not know how long it will take, but I know that God will help me. You see, there is a fixity of hope. It is looking unto God because this is the antidote to despondency. And it is the antidote to self-sufficiency. You see, when you hope in God, you're no longer hoping in yourself. You're not seeking your own solution to your own troubles. You're hoping in God. You have heard of Pandora and Pandora's box. 
Pandora was, of course, a mythical creature. A beautiful woman, but evil, who had a jar, and in the jar were a host of evil things. And when she opened the jar, all the evil spilt out on humanity. But there's only one thing remaining in the jar that humanity did not receive. It was hope. I think about that, I, and I conclude, you know, that men and women outside of Christ don't have true hope. They are without hope and without God in this world. But God has not withheld this gift from us. He has given us hope. And our hope is a well-placed hope. It is hope that is rooted in Jesus, who is our hope. Paul quotes Isaiah, who says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall reign, rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Our hope is placed in none other than Jesus Christ, in his blood and in his righteousness. This hope we have is well placed because it is the gift of the Spirit. Paul says, I pray you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope is a well-founded hope because it does not disappoint. It is good hope. It is living hope. It is a hope for righteousness, Paul says. It is a hope for grace. And ultimately, it is a hope for glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, this is the hope we are called to. It does not disappoint. And you and I must, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hardship, we must go on hoping. We must look to God. We must say, Lord, we will seek no solution but that which you provide. Amen. We will wait on no help but the help that comes from heaven. And we know that you will not disappoint. Are you hoping in the Lord? Because there is no deliverance outside of him. You need a fixity of hope if you're to live. And you need the blessedness of deliverance from sin. Let me make this one comment and conclude. Mark Twain was no friend of Christianity. And he wrote a, an article entitled Thoughts of God. Whenever you see Mark Twain writing about God, you should get a bit nervous. He's not going to say anything positive. Twain, in this article, Thoughts of God, exhibits his loathing for flies. I don't know why he chose flies, but he clearly in the article does not like flies. He thinks they are among the worst creatures that were ever created. He claims that no human being would ever think of creating a fly. And if we ever did, we would do so under an assumed name. And then he questions God. He says, how can a good God create such a wicked, pestilent creature like a fly to torment us? Now, we don't have the time to answer Twain here, 
I think he makes some massive leaps. For instance, that God created flies to torment us. God created all things for our enjoyment, including flies and snakes and everything else. But sin changed the entire universe. We haven't got time to deal with that. So he questions the goodness of God because there are flies, pestilent flies. Perhaps a response, maybe an unusual response, comes from C.S. Lewis, another literary giant. Lewis, in an article, Meditation in a Tool Shed, talks about going into a tool shed in the darkness. And as he looks above the door, he sees a space and a shaft, a beam of light coming through. First of all, he looks at the beam of light. And then he looks along the beam of light. And as he does, he sees trees outside. And as he looks beyond the trees, he sees the sun. You see, it's one thing to look at light and another to look along light. It's one thing to look at the goodness of God and another thing to look along the goodness of God. Because when you draw close and you look along the goodness of God, it leads you to the cross. It leads you to the cross where Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. And anyone who wishes to live for God must not only consider the brevity of life, must not have this fixity of hope, but he also must know forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins that God in his goodness has provided by giving us a Savior in Jesus Christ. It is David who says this, Blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You need to know not only that your life is brief. You need to know not only must you trust in God, but you need to know forgiveness of sins. And the greatest news this morning is that in God, in Christ, there is full forgiveness for all of sins and those who come in repentance those who come in faith, trusting in Christ, will have their slate wiped clean, all their sins removed. And when we see him, not only will the guilt of our sins be removed, but the consequences of sins also will finally be moved. May God help us to think of life's brevity, to fix our hope on God, and to know and to rejoice in the forgiveness that he gives. For Jesus' sake, amen.